friends. I'm Olivia. And I'm Katie. And we are Podcast by Proxy. Welcome. breakfast for dinner what did you have oh my god it's gonna seem like we always do this but we only do it on days we record we both had meetings right now so we got mcdonald's <laughs> katie's eating a big mac again how'd you guess i just know i don't eat meat although so i don't eat anything besides breakfast really at mcdonald's because they well i mean that one time i came to your house I remember when I came to your house and ordered. Yes, like, I know exactly what you're gonna two say. Two filet fishes and ate them on the couch like the piece of shit that I am. I think it was oh a double filet fish actually. So it had yeah, two of those. It was just a double. Patties. No, it was just a double. In real, in on the real, real though, I so miss ordering a disgusting amount of like fast food to order. It's so DoorDash. Do they have DoorDash in like? The states or anything? Is that just a Canadian thing, or did we steal DoorDash from? No, the it's states? everywhere. Okay, well, we DoorDash or like skip the dishes. We would order like so much fast food. Like it's we did mukbangs before mukbangs were a thing. We really did, and then we would just eat it and either watch makeup YouTube or like true crime docs on Netflix. Yes, that quarantine took that away from me. I hate it. I know it's not the same. Speaking of Netflix docs. I'm really excited <clears throat> to dun, talk. Dun. I'm really excited to talk. No, I'm really excited to talk about this one today. I'm jazzed. It's going to be, for everyone listening, it's going to be... Uh, spoiler Central? Yeah, it's going to be a mixture of, like, Spoiler Central. So if you haven't watched Murder... Wait. Murder Among the Mormons. <laughs> okay, this is my episode and I didn't even know what I watched. Murder Among the Mormons uh, on Netflix, and you want to, like, you you don't want to hear spoilers before you do, watch it and then come back, because it's going to be a lot of spoilers. I'm going to mix up, like, we're going to kind of timeline it so we will cover things that were already in the documentary, but some stuff was not as well. I find, found some fun little tidbits, and then we're yeah, also- Yeah, we're just- just not gonna preface every moment it's a spoiler so we're just gonna disclaim it now that yeah if you want to watch it just hit pause take three hours and come back yeah these ones are fun though and okay so i'll say i hadn't heard of this before the netflix documentary had you yeah you had well i knew it was coming because i am like a little OCD about checking the new and popular on my netflix account and i set reminders for myself on stuff so i just kind of knew things were coming but had you heard of the case? Do you remember this happening? No, because mm, you weren't alive. No. But had you heard of the case? You don't you No, but I hadn't this. even heard of his name. No. Okay, okay. So me neither. And I don't know why, but I just kind of when I when I scrolled past it on Netflix, I was just kinda of like meh, I don't really care. Or that's not the first thing that I want to watch right now. Or it just wasn't on my radar kind of thing, I guess is a better way to put it. And Yeah, so it doesn't my, stand out. No, and so my boyfriend one day was like, hey, do you want to watch that Mormon murder show on Netflix? And I was like, oh, you want to watch that? And uh, Also, another, just like a quick anecdote here. If someone else wants something else like that on Netflix to watch, another show that was like sneaky under the radar to me, even though it's been out for a long time, is that How to Get Away with a Drug Scandal. 
I thought that from the cover looked like meh. Oh my God. Stop your life. Well, after this recording, stop your life and go watch it. (laughs) I can't stop my life. This is my life. Actually, when we're done this, I'm going back to work. Like I'm working again for an hour. You crazy. I I know. It's out of hand. So Brandon's like, we should watch this. And I said, okay. And I went into it pretty meh. Like I I was like, "Eh, I don't know how (laughs) good this is going to be because apparently I judged a book by its cover. And it led me down a lot of different wild paths. My hands were literally glued to my face for four hours. I It was fucking fascinating. This is, it's wild. So I'm, I, I ended up stopping that. So I watched it for four hours and then I researched this for another like four hours. That was my whole Sunday. One day. It wasn't this past Sunday. I think it was the week before. And I will say this now. You told me to watch this. And I did. And I hope that your research changes my opinion, because you'll find out along the way how I felt about the documentary. Oh, boy. Okay. You didn't like it? It's a roller coaster for me. No, it was a roller coaster for me, too, It's not that I didn't like it. It wasn't that I didn't like it. I will say the first two episodes, I was waiting to see what was going to be the thing that specifically caught my interest. And again, it's different for everyone, but I just couldn't quite figure out what was going to get my attention yeah. and get so me hooked. I think, think we should, we could go on this tangent for a really long time. I feel like, so I feel like we should just get into it and then we can talk about Let's it do as this. we go. But I will say that, yeah, it, it takes you on a roller coaster. Like you think one thing, yes. then you think another thing, then you think another thing, then you're back to like square one and it's just a lot. So, And I think all of us are going to have one of the exact same questions the entire documentary. Yeah. The other thing that I want to say just before we start is that if you have watched it or you've seen the title of it on Netflix, the, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints obviously comes up a lot and they cover a lot of the significance of what that means for the church and everything in the documentary and I will I didn't go into it at all so if that's something that you're like interested about obviously I mention it because it's a big part of the story but I don't talk about like the implications to the church or basically anything to do with Mormonism at all so that if that's something that you want to learn more about then you should watch the documentary because I feel like they cover it a lot in that but I'm really just definitely what happened so we're not a religion podcast we are a true crime podcast, so exactly. we will cover the true crime case yeah, <laughs> portions. Not just not my thing personally. No, and not what we're I'm not educated experts. in, or like even willing to start talking about. Nope, <laughs> me neither. So I'm pretty much just gonna start from when Mark's born. They you touch go. On his, they touch on his upbringing a bit, obviously, in the documentary, but I think it's really important to understand like who he is and his his motive. So, Mark Hoffman, Mark William Hoffman, was born in 1954 in Salt Lake City, Utah. He had a really interesting childhood. He was raised heavily in the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. And for the rest of the episode, I'm just going to refer to it as the LDS Church because it comes up a lot and that's what they refer to it as in the documentary. He wasn't gifted academically. He showed pretty poor grades in school, but he showed intelligence in other ways. He was really into, like, magic electronics chemistry he he really liked collecting he showed a more advanced interest 
in collecting early on, I guess you would say, more so than your average kid just, like, collecting pretty rocks at the beach. He was always really uh, interested in, like, activities that stimulated his brain. So they talk about his coin collecting a lot in the documentary that starts at around age 12. Mm. And this is not what you consider coin collecting to be as, like, a normal 12-year-old. He was already... Yeah, it's not a hobby. No. And so they go into it, obviously, in the documentary, but he was really, really already aware of the concept of like rarity and what actually made a coin perceived to be valuable and he was able to recognize early on that the differences between what made the coin valuable or not were so subtle and he was like i could probably get away with replicating it myself which (laughs) mentally is so wild to me at 12 but i know in the documentary when it shows Right when it shows this like child with a soldering gun, I was like, Who are you? Like, yeah, yeah, I was like building like single piece of plywood or sorry, like two by four birdhouses at that age. I wasn't soldering and making mock rare coins. I was collecting pennies to make them beanie babies. I was collecting beanie babies at 12 as well. PSA, I'm going to dress peanut butter up as a beanie baby for Halloween this year. So stay tuned Heck for yes. that. No, but okay. So I collected pennies, but I did so to do the weird science experiment where you turn them green, you know, where you yeah. put them in whatever and then they turn like the color of the building in Victoria, the main building. Don't I know. got you. <laughs> you know what I mean. I so, anyways, do you mean the so parliament like, buildings? Yes, I do mean the parliament building. You know how the top of the parliament building is made out of the same thing as a penny, a.k.a. copper, and it's all, it's that color of, like, kind of very light teal or whatever? Yeah, I used to do that Mm -hmm. to pennies, because you can do that. I wasn't out here doing this shit. But do you, like, put them in Coca-Cola? Something like I don't remember, but I remember doing it in the kitchen. I have, like, very vivid memories of me doing it in my parents'. This is basically, like, he, this, his, yeah, anyways. It was also reported, I found, that I don't remember being in the documentary, but maybe it was. I didn't take notes on it because I wasn't expecting it to be this wild ride. Him and his friends in, like, around this age, maybe a little bit older than 12, but around, you know, 12 to 15, would make bombs for fun on the outskirts of Murray, Utah. They were just, like, making their own bombs and then going like to that. shit up. Maybe they did. <laughs> It's hard to remember. I think they did say something about it, like, just with, like, firecrackers and stuff. So it's at 15 that he decides to do an experiment with the coin. So he's a little bit older when he actually did his own, started doing his own forgery on the coins. But he, this is when he took a normal coin. He masked it photographically, leaving only the part of the metal where the mint mark would be. The mint mark is like the letter on the coin that d- that identifies how valuable it is. He did that electric plated a D on the bare spot of the coin, which is what Katie was talking about with him and in, in the room when doing whatever he was doing. And yeah, like art attack for coins here. Yeah, they call it electroplating and then built it up to a certain height to make a full new mark. And this one was considered to be way more rare than the original. So he's pretty happy with it. He's like, yeah, this looks pretty good. So he decides to take it to a local coin dealer 
And the shop owner examines the yeah. coin and offers him thousands of dollars for it if it passed inspection by the U.S. Treasury Department. So we do see this in the documentary, <laughs> but it was just so crazy to me that I, I had to put the... He doesn't hesitate at all. He's like, yeah, absolutely, send it in. And they authenticate the coin. Well, because what are they going to do? Be like, oh, no, yeah, someone like, duped no. this teenage boy. And he's going to be like, oh, shucks. Or Thanks. they're going to do it. And he's going to be like, oh, my God, look what I had. And play dumb. Yeah, there's no downside to it. I mean, he's 15. We yeah, all lied why at not 15. try? We just maybe didn't lie to the U.S. Treasury Department. Well, yeah. <laughs> so they authenticate the coin. And that's when he really starts to his concept of, like, validity. His ego gets involved here, too. His ego gets involved here for sure. I mean, I think his <laughs> yeah. ego was involved from the... I think he was just born with one of those. But... I think his ego was validated in this moment, which was yes. one of the most dangerous things that ever happened. Because I think he had been kept at bay, not having been validated. And this just kind of put him on this trajectory. Yes. Okay, that's such a better way to put it. Totally. He felt like his ego was validated because at this point, like, he's been told by based, like by the government that this is real and, like, he yeah. just made it in his fucking bedroom. So his concept, basically, God. of what was actually, like, real and fake and valuable and, like, what this means and what he could do with this and, yeah, basically his ego shifts entirely mm -hmm. at this point and he's 15 years old. He admits that he stopped practicing or even believing in Mormonism himself. He became an atheist at 14, he says. But he kept up the ruse to everybody else in his life that he hadn't. I think probably A, for social pressure because of the environment he grew up in, and B, because he knew he could probably do this. Well, it kept him more credible, yeah. I think if you're... Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, you understand it. You're part of it. I think, yeah, being that same religion made him more believable yeah and then so another part of why he was basically like turned his back on the church and turned atheist and just another reason because so he discovered that his grandfather practiced polygamy at a time when it wasn't considered to be okay to the church and so he was basically just like everything's a lie play's gonna play yeah but it apparently pissed him off he was like my whole life is a joke so i'm just gonna fuck you guys because you know what I mean? had like, a few extra wives. But it was against the church, and he was, like, so heavy in the church. And I think he was just, like, because he was raised, like, the church is everything, and he's basically finding out along the way that, like, everything is bullshit. He's just... Well, yeah, and I guess the people that told him to follow the church's rules was defying them, so why does he have to follow them anymore? Yeah, he's just kind of like, this is what the fuck. Fair. So, like I said, he did continue to be a practicing Mormon on the outside so just kind of you know everything else in his life he's fake it till you make <laughs> be, it be a fucking fake <laughs> again I think just out of social pressure to keep up appearances but it was a complete deception not something he believed in at all and in his own words life and people were basically one big experiment so which I mean I don't completely disagree with but I don't think it's everyone else's experiment to have Oh, totally. Yeah. He didn't give a shit. He was about pulling the wool literally over anybody. Eyes, yeah. yeah. Also, I really like my eyebrows today. I filled them in differently with different product. I really like them too. What'd you use? I used a different pencil and then went over them with a shadow. Airbrushed them so they're not so bold. Fancy. I continue. Don't fuck. I don't put makeup on anymore. It's really pathetic. I can tell you're in pajamas right now. I live in pajamas. Do you have the I matching pants on? To that top? 
I wish I had the matching pants to this top. I don't own them. I've actually tried to look on Poshmark to see if I could find <laughs> like a similar shirt from the same brand. I've looked everywhere and I can't find it because Winners is just that bitch. Oh yeah, if anyone likes Poshmark, find Olive on there. Oh, I love Poshmark. I wish this was sponsored. It is not. Believe me, I would jump on that so fast. But I definitely get at Poshmark us. Poshmark store. I sell my stuff. I buy stuff on Poshmark. I love it. I just went to the post office and shipped two things to new homes today. Anyway, back to back to the program. Here. Also, follow us on Instagram at podcast by proxy. So yeah, as also discussed in the documentary, Mormon men typically do a two years overseas missionary trip. So he did one of these and uh, I don't remember where he went. Do you remember where he went? It was like no. the UK or something. Loservale? Yeah, yeah but he, no, he lives there. On this trip, though, I think it was in the UK, he took his spare time to do a lot of reading about Mormon church and faith, but he was particularly interested in, like, really, really old books about Mormonism and, like, critical texts that questioned a lot of the grounds that the modern church stood on for its faith. So a lot of the books or a lot of the texts that tried to prove that the church is bullshit, I guess, or like would question the church. Yeah, Um, I think that one guy in the documentary that we can talk about later, but like Shannon Flynn or whatever, mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. he said that he liked anything that brought out doubt or something like that. It was like along those lines and it was kind of like along what you're saying, like anything that made people question that what they believe is not right or not true. That's what he wanted. And I guess that kind of makes sense now with what we said about his grandpa, because that's yeah. what happened to him. So he's just like doing it to other people now. Exactly. And that is ruining like, all the fun. Yeah. And that was like the thing about his grandfather and the polygamy thing was noted in pretty much everything that I read and included in the documentary that like it made him mad. And that was the only time I read anything that said that it hmm. like pissed him off. And it wasn't. So that's what made him snap. I maybe I mean I I don't know but like these aren't violent crimes we all know that for to a certain extent like his long-term goal isn't violence and I think they're just like psychologically fucked yeah but I like and I just don't think he wanted to like I like we were talking about hurt people he wanted to just fuck with them so it's such a weird, I don't know. He's and like, it was literally a game to him. Like the, his whole Definitely. life, like people were just pawns in his game. His end goal, I don't believe either that his end goal was ever violence. Obviously we'll get there, but people were just like a means to an end in his experiment, yeah. whatever he was doing. I so, think every experiment has casualties and there's going to be things mm-hmm. to happen along the way. But yeah, I think overall his was a mental game. And more about breaking down a religion or trying to. Yeah. I mean, he expands after the fact. But yeah, this is where he starts. And I think that is really a lot of motivation behind it. And just knowing, especially like we obviously talked about like his ego and knowing that is what people think is real, real. And so he already had a lot of those questions. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. the question of how the Book of Mormon came to be that bothered him so much. But it was the fact that these stories that he was finding or that he was looking for and these theories had been hidden by the church. And he felt like the church was hiding unfavorable aspects of their past to serve their own needs. His feelings toward the church itself had hardened. 
And I, I think this is the main reason, well, this is the main reason that he gave personally for targeting the LDS church and its leadership with the crimes that he committed. Yeah. Because, I mean, he could have made anything. He could have kept just kept forging coins and targeting pawn shops or whatever. Do you know what oh, I mean? Oh, he still like, could have made literally a fortune done doing that. Yeah, he could have done anything. Like, but... it wasn't just about the money. Yeah, there's obviously there aspect. There had to be motivation behind his decision to com- to specifically target the church, and this is it. So in 1975, well, he no, nope. go. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I can keep going after. No, I'm just talking for the sake of hearing my own voice. Go ahead. <laughs> hearing my own voice makes me cringe when I listen to these. Um, I'm so used to listening to my own voice now, saying the stupidest shit. At least you hear the edited version. That's true, I really do. (laughs) Although the last one, I was so nervous for it that I listened to my own Audacity track back just to listen to myself. I know, I was really scared about the last episode. Mental health is a hard topic. The topic was sensitive and, like, it's hard to mix murder and humor and mental health. Yeah, it was just a lot. The trifecta. It was a lot. So, anyways. 1975, he comes home from his mission. His mission. Done. Dun, 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 dun. 1975, he returns home from his mission trip and he enrolled in college in U- in Utah as a pre-med student. He had a really tough time pretending to be normal in life, though. Like, he just didn't support Average, it. And, or no, normal? Normal. Like, he had a hard oh, okay. time. He had a hard time keeping up his ruse of his normal life of pretending that he was a Mormon and... Oh, that part, okay. This normal that he had created now that he had gone for two years and pretty much spent the entire time researching why the church is bullshit. He had a really hard time, like, pretending to be normal again. Like, coming back and being like, I did this and I did this and pretending he did all these things he didn't do as well. And pretending everything's fine, really. Yeah. So he wrote a letter to his mom, but he never actually sent it, but they have a copy of it, and this is how it reads. And they might have read a portion of it in the documentary. Excuse me if they did. I already said that a lot of this is going to be the same because I I couldn't stop at just the stuff they left out. <laughs> She's He said, Dear Mom, during our Easter feast, you gave it as your opinion that certain materials in the church archives should not be made public because there exists certain faith-demoting facts that should not be known. While you may take comfort in knowing that this has been an attitude of the leadership of the church, you have expressed anxiety because I do not share this belief. So you can tell that he's, like, not into the church. Yeah, he's over it already. Yeah, so he meets his wife, Dora Lee, and they marry in 1979. This is when he commits his first major crime. So we obviously know that he can counterfeit a coin, but this is like his first actual crime. This is a document stuck that he had stuck between the pages of like a Mormon book and he found in front of his wife and he admits in the documentary. Didn't he let her find it? Like he put the book on the table and so it made it look like she was flipping through and was like, oh my God, what's this? Or something like yeah, I think so. This one's called the Anthon transcript. I think you're right. I think he did have her open it. But and he find staged it. it, so yeah. But he basically staged it and like admits that he just used her. Like she was useful for that. 
But yeah, so she's actually, so she finds this document and he's like, oh my gosh. And she, because it's in this book that he brought back, this super old book that he brought back from um, London. He's like going through his old stuff and he just like magically finds this letter. And she's actually the person who convinces him to take the document to Utah State University university to try and get it authenticated they're astonished at the discovery and this is when they say it's they believe it to be what's called the anthon transcript they say it's an original and he was actually paid twenty thousand dollars by the lds church for this documentary or this documentary for this document (laughs) courtesy of netflix he was paid 20 grand in 1979 by the church for the money in 1979 so that they could conceal it Oh, yeah, of course. But that's a lot of money. It is a lot of money in 1979 and today, but mostly then. Yeah, that's crazy the amount of money they will pay just to make sure something is never seen and Mm -hmm. never causes doubt. Yep. Is ridiculous. And he, obviously, he's choosing specific documents or specific ones that he knows that they're going to jump all over. There's actually no confirmation, though, of whether this first crime was financially motivated or motivated by his, like, distaste for the church and Hmm. knowing that they'll pretty much do anything to get this off his hands if it's authenticated. Well, it does two things for him, kind of, I think. It validates that they believe that this could be true and that there is this doubt out there. So it confirms it to him. So, of course, he knows he can continue to get away with it because now these secret documents are becoming a real thing. Mm-hmm. But also, he knows he can get a payoff. It's literally yeah. checking all his boxes. He gets to fuck with people. He gets money. And he gets to make people question their religion. It's and a lot. his ego gets another boost because after oh, the yeah. sale of this document, it's his first huge sale. Nobody's heard of this dude before in the Mormon community anyways, like not as a big document finder or document like historical no. document trader this sale he got a lot huge of publicity he got huge publicity yeah. he actually dropped out of college at this point and decided to make a full-time career out of forging rare documents it's like i can do this full-time i do not need but to like, work well this is my you, work how do you find one document and then explain that like people aren't going to be like well he found one he can find any i mean again from square one i'm just saying i don't understand how you explain that at least forge five or six and then be like i'm getting good at this guys and then quit do you know how you explain it katie ego for ego (laughs) or that he actually said it himself we hear it in the documentary that selling authentic doc because he did sell authentic documents as well but it was a cover to keep people from becoming suspicious kind of what you're saying like how'd you find all this shit well he's selling real ones to make people feel like they must all be real like there's no suspicion yeah, he couldn't he's also doing all these quick. no exactly the so other... the, yeah the real business was the fake documents but the the yeah. real documents were just supporting yeah he said like the real documents were the easy part <laughs> yeah he actually too at this point i don't know if they touched on this but he returns to his interests in forging money but he starts forging antique <laughs> mormon money as well instead of like real money of course so the next is the salamander letter. We learn all about this letter oh in the documentary. When he said he originally had it as a common toad, but decided to make it a salamander to spice it up. Oh my god, I know. Jason and I both laughed at that. Because we just were like, that's what you consider spicing it up as well? Like, 
That's... Just think, think about this guy sitting in his room, though, and, like, howling to himself, being like, oh, I think I'm going to make it a salamander to make it a little fancier. Like, it's it's heinous. Like, you know, this when... whole thing is so heinous. You know, when you see in movies, when you see, like, someone sitting, like, it shows them, like, camera angles from behind their computer, and they're, like, writing a story, and they're like, the man... No, 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 no. The Beast. And they're like, <laughs> I'm so good. It's like, that's him. Okay, no. So this part I actually don't remember being in the documentary. I think this was from... Because I ended up, like, taking my original What Netflix Didn't Tell You and, like, morphing it into this whole thing. So I have no idea, like, what was in the documentary, what wasn't. But I'm pretty Fair. sure this wasn't. The Salamander letter was actually questioned. The validity of this letter was questioned by researchers. So... Researchers Gerald and Sandra Tanner, they actually helped lead to the downfall of Mark Hoffman. And they were aware of the connection that the letter had to early Mormonism, but something Mm -hmm. about it just didn't feel right to them because that letter was said to be written, like the original was supposed to have been written by a man who was a devoutly religious man. And they actually had a genuine letter from him that used the terms Lord, angel, and holy multiple times. And the salamander letter that Mark had produced had none of that terminology. And like mythical almost. There was something that was more unusual about that it was unusual because there was really no focus on his religion or like interactions with an actual prophet. Like none of that was in there. Yeah. So it just didn't make sense. And so he was on very off topic in consideration to what it should have been. Yeah. And so he was already on their radar at at that time. And they actually wrote articles questioning the the authenticity of the salamander letter. As you should. Could you imagine this would never get by today? I mean, I don't know. He was so good at it. He, but like, like, they were doing this all like with their eyes back then. That's true. Now we but have also, all these computers that look at, like, the weight of ink and, like, yeah. the density of it. So it's like, I would hope. Not the density, but that isn't how they ended up figuring it out was stuff to do Eventually, with the ink. I guess. So I think so cool. he honestly was just so, so, so good. And, like... He was. How do you... Ugh. There's no database for historical documents that... No, one of a kinds or one of a kind for a reason. There's no cross-referencing database. Like, I'm not blaming the people who authenticated these. He was so good. He had been doing this since a kid. Yeah, there's no codex for artifacts. This was his, he, yeah, he knew what he was doing. He practiced a million times. He probably made a million of these before he actually produced the one that he used. I bet you he made a ton like, I did actually wonder that. But you know what? He does say, though, the reason why he's so good is because he has, like, a photographic memory for fonts. So yeah. he can look at something over and over and over again and then just, like, whip it out the first time, it sounds like. Yeah, but still, too, I think with the first one, he must have had to do a few because he had to yeah. make sure the paper is the right amount of aged and, you know, he's running them through water tanks and all this other weird crap. So, like, the process God. was just so in-depth that I would think he would have had to His process it is. and not yeah. just produce one and be like, look what I did. I don't know. He just seems like a, a guy that would practice before he tries to sell it yeah. for 20 k Okay, let's move on from the salamander letter with the toad. The toad salamander letter. Although I do agree. I like the salamander better. 
the next major document that he was dealing, he was doing ones in between as well. Like, he was doing non-Mormon documents as well. I know that there was some, like, poetry that he was forging as well that's still out there. Oh, whatever you were looking for, he had or he could find, he'd say. So, yeah, he did everything. Yeah, so the next one is the Oath of Freeman. We see him in the documentary slip it into a book in a bookstore, and then he makes sure to open it and find it in front of somebody, I think, who works there. He pays $25 for the book to create a paper trail, and then he tries to negotiate the sale of what he says is a second copy to the Library of Congress. And at this point, people are kind of starting to get suspicious. Like, you found two copies of this same super, super rare document. Two. You found two. Nobody can find one. And keep in mind, if you haven't watched this documentary, like, this rare document finding and dealing is like a huge business there's tons of people behind the scenes like that are in the same position as him that are doing this and can't find any of these and have been like dedicating their life to this and then he just pops up one day and can find them all yeah and like within like one a month it seems like at the rate he's doing things Yeah, so of course people are starting to get suspicious. It just didn't seem possible that he could be finding this many authentic, super important and rare documents and nobody else could. But Mm -hmm. he was very persuasive. He was very believable. He was very fucking narcissistic. And he was charming. We we don't like those those two traits together. Narcissistic and charming in the same sentence are never good. Never good. His own wife had no clue, and she maintains that to this day she did not know. She says, she she just says, I, I know that it sounds ridiculous and stupid that I couldn't have known, but I had no clue. And so when at this point- she even says, yeah. that was his job, I didn't ask, and he had a room that he went in. It was just a room I didn't have to clean, I didn't ask any questions. Yeah, but locked in, you're not allowed to go in there. My grandpa had his hunting room, so, like, I get it, or if you're a police officer or something, but they're rare documents. I could totally understand, like, even humidity could be an issue in there, but also the fact that he once said to her that he had forged something, and then she kind of goes, what? And he's like, I'm just kidding. So he, like, tested the waters with her once, and it's like, if he even pretended that, you should have had a red flag up, lady. I guess so, but it's also your husband, and if he's this, like, really, really yeah. charming, nice dude, he's putting well, back food on the table for he you. He was the income. He was the main breadwinner. Yeah. Like, yeah, and like she said, it's just a room I didn't have to clean. Like, I do get it. I'm not blaming her in any way, shape, or form. No, um, but I think she just knew more than she lets on. Yeah, maybe. She may. Or whatever. Uh, at this point, though, like, he could not stop. His finances were out of control. He was way over in it, way in over his head. Sorry, and he was gonna have to find a way to produce more documents to sell for a pretty high value and fast. Like he just he jumped in way too deep with all yeah. of this, and yeah. Well, and he said he was like forging documents to buy authentics to resell. But he'd have to get multiple authentics to sell for the value of one of his forgeries. But because the forgeries take so long, mm-hmm. there's where the issue lies. And like how he used to steal the covers from <clears throat> inside old books to be able to replicate them. Like, yeah, like his that was his fascinating. Mind for this, just knew no bounds. Yeah, and the way he's the ways that he figured out like the sciences to like managing how to make these papers truly do what he needed. 
like the part with the ink pulling through that's mm-hmm. all i'm gonna say but you'll know what i mean with the like i know that thing was, I know. that was so cool that's part of the reason why i just i had to research Not to this, give them credit. write it and do it now because i just i am blown away i'm not even i don't even want to give him like notoriety like bro you're not cool this is just it's crazy that your brain went here i think his brain yeah his brain is cool it's crazy that your brain went here and that your brain fucking works this way it's just really unfortunate that you suck used it for bad don't know how to use it yeah exactly because this is incredible true so this is when we get to the final, the final showdown, the McClellan collection. So this is a collection that Mark had claimed Stressful. he could get his hands on. It was this big, 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 huge deal. Um, because at this point, his status and connections within the church from all of his previous sales, like he's making all of these documents that he knows the church is going to i want to say want to but have to buy to keep them in their archives so he has this relationship with them now and this one's notoriously known for having lots of controversial topics statements as well as it's multiple different styles of books paperwork documents writing font scripts like it's so many things that he has Mm -hmm. to make to forge this collection just for anyone who hasn't seen it because it's not just one thing yeah a bunch of something he knows the collection doesn't even exist but Uh he's securing loans from the church leadership so like loans to buy the collection and then just continuously delaying the delivery of it do you remember how long in the end he delayed on it? I don't I, remember how long he delayed. It was quite a while, though. But I know that at this point, they reveal that his total debts were $1 million in 1980. Again, in the 70s. Or early 80s, I mean. Or in the early... I guess it was in, like, the earlier 80s, not in 1980, but, like, in the early 80s. A million dollars in debt. And he knew. Jeez. He had no McClellan collection. He had promised this huge collection that was going to take oh, yeah. forever for him to forge. And he'd even... Oh, sorry. He had promised this to all these people and nothing... But nobody had ever seen anything. He, he had never had anything to show like Not them. even one piece. No. He yeah. was just like, oh, I can get my hands on this. I have it. And so this it. is when Steve Christensen, who was Mark's first victim of his more even more serious crime begins he begins to press him about the collection and how he's going to pay back the loan to him as soon as possible Steve Christensen was a financial consultant he collected historical documents and I also know that his dad was a a business owner in the Mormon community for Mormon clothes like for missionaries I think okay yeah So, Steve is his first victim. Mark was supposed to meet Steve Christensen on October 11th at his office to endorse the McClellan collection so that they could make a deal with a Mormon investor, but Mark never showed up, and Christensen angrily asked a friend to tell Hoffman on, like, on October 11th when he never showed up that he was at risk of criminal charges as well as exoneration from the church because of how long it had been that he had been saying he had these documents securing all like taking out all these loans and hadn't everyone's super suspicious at this point so 
Steve kind of sends him an angry message. Exactly. Yeah, you're just stealing at this point. October 15th, 1985, Mark goes to Steve Christensen's office and he drops off a a pipe bomb, like a homemade pipe bomb that he had made wearing his own Letterman jacket, pompous, arrogant, and stupid. And Steve obviously comes back to his office and when he goes to pick it up, it, it, it goes off and he dies instantly because when Mark made that pipe bomb, he wrapped it in nails to ensure a kill i remember watching that yeah that is gnarly a few times because they show that a couple scenes in a row yeah so he drops off a second bomb and he drops it off at steve christians's business partner gary sheets house and it kills gary's wife kathy and i don't know about anybody else listening to this that watched the documentary but my fucking mouth dropped when he was talking about how that bomb was just an experiment. He said, he fucking said, it could have been a dog or a child and I did not care. He said, blown up, a dog or a child. And he didn't care. I almost turned it off at this point, but like I was so far in that I couldn't stop. You couldn't stop? I couldn't stop, but I, he's so evil. He's so fucking evil. Like, the, fuck you. Okay, I'm getting heated. And so in the documentary, we kind of only touch on the fact that it, the third bomb, so of course the third bomb, I think it's the next day, goes off inside his car. So like, Salt Lake City is freaking out. They're like, do we live in the United States or do we live in... I don't know, Iraq, somewhere where there's a lot of war. Because what the fuck? There's bombs going yeah. off everywhere at random people's houses. Like, where the hell are we? So the next day, a third bomb goes off and it goes off inside Mark's MR. And as far as I was aware, they. So in the documentary, I was under the impression that by the end of it, we just think that the third bomb was a suicide. Is that what you got out of the documentary? That's what they said. I mean,. I guess. I, I don't really believe so. It, I was going to say and that's just it was my not. opinion. No, no, no. I can tell you it, it wasn't. So, well, and the thing is, if this guy wanted to kill himself, he'd be successful. Well, he purposely put nails around the bombs of the people that he wanted to kill. He knew how to guarantee a kill. He filled them with nails. Yeah. Yeah. So it's actually believed that that bomb went off inside of his car by accident and that it was intended for someone else at a third unknown location. And they were thinking that potentially the researchers I was talking about earlier, the Tanners, who was writing articles about like that they didn't think his documents were legit, were on a like a list of potential targets. Yeah, I remember them asking that guy, there's rumors that it was for you. What do you think? And he's just like, there's that moment where you just look at his face and it's like, I couldn't even imagine thinking that for a second the other thing that i was thinking is could it have possibly been like a diversion where he placed it in the car and he didn't put nails around it he knew that he'd be like severely injured but wouldn't die but would make him look like he was also a targeted victim and take the heat off of himself definitely a possibility the only thing is didn't he have a bunch of documents in his car at the time that were actually kind of important so it seems weird that he would have blown those up or were they not important documents i can't remember Anyway, there was a bunch of documents in there, so it just seems if he was going to blow up his car, I just don't know if he would have documents in it. That's the only reason I leaned a bit more to it accidentally going off. 
Yeah, everything I read said that it was in his car and it was an accident. But it also wouldn't be the first extreme thing that... It wouldn't be the first extreme (laughs) thing he did to lie. No. The prosecution, obviously, in this case, had a pretty open and shut case. They had a massive forgery operation going on in his basement that they found bomb-making materials. They found the alias that he had been using to make forgery purchases. He had direct dealings with Steve Christensen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I could continue, but I think you get the point. It's a very long list of what they have against him and what they find. Yeah. So instead of going to trial, he pled guilty to two counts of second degree murder, one count of forgery and one count of fraud. He was sentenced to five years to life in prison. Well, what kind of a sentence is that? I hate that sentence. It is the worst. I almost don't know if it's worse for the public or the criminal because it's so up in the air. There's zero structure to that sentence. I just, Five I don't get years? it. To life. I guess probably. And Buddy's what? I think it's late 30s at this point. So like that could be five to 60 years probably. But I think it's because, and I'm guessing because I don't know a ton about the US law or like justice system, but I think it's because it's second degree murder and then forgery and fraud obviously probably carry a pretty low minimum. And so I'm thinking, which they I know shouldn't. Utah, no, I know they should. He, they should be high, <laughs> but yeah, I know second, like Utah is really similar to Canada in terms of like they their parole. Like Utah lets people get away with a lot. Similar to Canada, yes, but that's why I'm gonna put it that way. Let's see what it is. I'm gonna Google. They're similar to second us. Second degree murder. Yeah, second degree murder in Canada, like, you could have 10 years without the possibility of parole. And so you could apply for parole at, like, 10 years. So I'm thinking, like, is it maybe a situation like that? But instead of having the 25 years without parole cap, they have, because it's the states, they have life. Like, you can actually get, like, full life. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm thinking that that sentence means. Yeah, because here it says that, so, kind of weird the way they word this, but essentially it seems like it can be up to 15 years in prison. So that would make sense then why it passed the six-year point or five-year point. So they just did that, I guess, because right. it's an accumulation of a few smaller charges combined with one big one. Yeah. If he had not committed the murders, like if he had just done the forgeries, he would have been sentenced to jail time, but absolutely not life. No. And he more than likely, he will spend, like the parole board has basically said that they believe he will spend the re- the remainder of his life in prison because five to 15 years without the possibility of parole doesn't mean you get out at 15 years it means that you can apply and have it reviewed but the utah parole, parole board parole. has yeah the utah parole board has said no no like more than likely this mofo is going to be in there for life well and they um, said so they do 26- he's a risk of reoffending. like he's addicted to forging at this point so he is a risk of continuing to do it and he shows no remorse. He's a dick. He only cares None. about himself. Not yeah. at all. Did you see halfway through the documentary how his wife changed from his wife to his ex-wife in her title? That was like my favorite moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, obviously they like did it for storyline purposes, but it was amazing. <laughs> I know. And her um, attitude just changes a little bit at that moment. You're like, yes. <laughs> I love it. She like had to act because she did that all in one day. That interview, like, all of her segments in that documentary was all done in one day. Jeez, that's a lot. Yeah. 
So until 2016, Mark was housed at the Utah State Facility, and in 2016, he was moved to Central Utah Correctional Facility. And I'm pretty sure that means he was housed at Federal Max, and in 2016, he was actually moved to a lower-level facility. Security? Yeah. Yes. Thank you for getting that word out of my mouth for me. Like I said, it's cur- it's currently of the belief that the, of the parole board that he's going to remain in prison for the rest of his life. And Mark was really sent into a spiral when his wife divorced him. Boo-hoo, I don't feel bad for you. We hear her on the documentary say that he told her, like, when she filed for divorce. And did you really think she wasn't going to file for divorce? Well, he said something along the lines of, or there's a clip in there, and it's just, like, one line where they're, like, something about... Like, oh, are you going to stay married as he's getting arrested? And he's like, yeah, I think so. Or yeah, I hope so. He really thinks she's not going to leave him by the sounds of it. Like, he truly doesn't. You really think she's (laughs) she's not going to find all this out. She's going to find out that you used fully. You bombed people. But, like, also used used her in your lives and didn't tell her. Oh, definitely. And, like, basically just, like, used her as a fucking... Again, I'm going to use the chess term, even though I can't play chess. You've used her as a pawn in your little game. Oh, yeah, game. he used her to hit the ground running with a piece of something he found by letting it be found slightly yeah. by someone else. And then the oh. other obvious part, like Katie said, you fucking bombed two people. So you're kidding me. Anyways, so he told her never to come back. She hasn't seen him since. And she filed in 1988. And in... August of 1988, she she filed for divorce, and in September of 1988, so a month later, Mark attempted suicide via overdose, and he collapsed in his cell. He did not die, kind of unfortunately, but I almost like the outcome, this outcome better. He spent so long on the floor, I don't... I was going to say I don't know why I laughed, but I don't feel bad for this guy. He spent so long on the floor when he collapsed and the way that he fell, he ended up suffering severe tissue damage to his right arm. So he can like not really use that arm. Oh yeah, he he said he could never forge again. (laughs) I think that's the part of the documentary where Shannon goes like, he will never be able to forge again. Okay, can we just talk about (laughs) that guy's voice though? Like why in the clips was it normal? Yes. Yeah, what happened? Yes. And I'm not poking fun. If he had a tracheotomy or had an anaphylactic reaction, I get it. But what happened? Because that I was just know. like when I saw the clip of him when he was younger and he's just blah, 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 blah. And now he's like, and I was on, 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 on. Like, we were saying that we were was spot on if like, i do say so myself no and we're not poking fun at him at all but like totally we were watching it and brandon was saying like he's so soft-spoken and we thought he was so cute and then yeah. they show the clips from when he's younger and he starts talking and i was like wait what the fuck what where did that come from exactly and yeah. i thought the same thing and it just kind of mind boggled me so i would like some clarity on that that's really the only question i have outstanding <laughs> the first two episodes were so boring to me and then the last 40 minutes of the third episode i was like in their like swimwear you couldn't pry me away from the tv so i'm glad i sat through it because it's super interesting it's just slow so i'm curious in the first episode did you know yeah. 
Yeah, okay. So I knew five minutes in. Like, like we had it on, and as soon as they were saying, he was amazing, he was the best, he was finding all these documents, oh, I literally turned and looked up. I looked at Brandon, and I was like, he's forging those. Yeah, we definitely thought that right away, for sure. But I think I didn't understand what was so important about them, too. So I think that was part no, of it. No, meaning. No, I definitely so, yeah, didn't I get think... that either. But I was like, they've, they're forged for sure. But then, by the end of the first episode, I was like, well, maybe not. Like, maybe somebody killed him. Like, maybe he's the... What? Like, I was so... Like, you're not quite sure what the case is, so to speak, yet, in a way. I had no idea what the fuck was going on, but I knew that I had to know what the fuck was going on. (laughs) I'm just going to (laughs) apologize to my dad for swearing so much in this episode, because he doesn't like it when I do, and I've said the F word, like, a lot of times today. Oh, and your dad's so sweet. Don't disappoint him. I know, my dad's the best. Shout out to my dad. We love you, Bill. So there Swell is a guy book. there. Didn't he just have a big anniversary at work? My dad? I thought, yeah, on the slideshow. He what wouldn't tell me milestone? or anyone else if he did. Like 25, 30 years? You know what? I thought he I had a milestone this year. I bet you it's 30. Bill, if it's 30. Do you know why I find us on Instagram? Because <laughs> my dad doesn't have Instagram. He doesn't even have Facebook. I know, I just thought I would The try. reason... That I know that it's his 30 years is because he got that job when they decided to have me and my 30th birthday is this year. That was like his big boy job because he's going to have a family to feed. Congrats, Bill, on 30 years and a big boy job. You did it. (laughs) You really did. Okay. So there's a book if anyone wants to like read more about this from there's two what they call secular or non-religious authors uh, wrote it. Uh, It's called The Mormon Murders. And in 2011, a letter that Hoffman, uh, so Mark, had penned to the Utah Board of Pardons and Parole in 1988 so when his wife divorced him that must have been around the time that he was like sentenced and went to jail too i'm assuming that letter's released to the public in 2011 and they do uh, talk touch on this in the documentary i think he opens it by saying these are some of my thoughts concerning my crimes and how i became what i am as far back as i can remember i have liked to impress people through my deceptions in fact some of my earliest memories are of doing magic and card tricks fooling people gave me a sense of power and superiority I believe this is what led to my forging activities. He wrote um, in the letter that he needed months to forge the McClellan collection, but when Steve Christensen threatened to expose him as a fraud if he did not deliver the documents by October 15th, he decided he needed to take drastic measures. He writes of his crimes, The most important thing in my mind was to keep from being exposed as a fraud in front of my friends and family. Excuse me for thinking he gave a fuck about what his friends and family... No, he only cared about his own image. When I say mm-hmm. this was the most in- when I say this was the most important thing, I mean it literally. I felt I would rather take human life or even my own life rather than to be exposed. Yeah, because he <laughs> cares pathetic. more about his image than anything else. You and suck. at any cost. You should PSA to literally everyone, you should care more about being a good person than you should about your image and what other people think of you and how much money you have and the things that you own and just be fucking nice anyways 
He continues on by writing that money wasn't the object, at least not at first. He says he began forging at the age of 14. He never actually sold a forgery until he was 24, I guess, besides that pawn shop experiment. And he says at 25, he decided to forge for a living. And between the years of 1980 and when he was captured in 85, his income was made almost exclusively from forgeries. He said he didn't originally know who the victims would be and that he began to employ many different forms of rationalization for the upcoming murders. For example, he says that he took a note interest in the obituaries. He actually wrote to the parole board, quote, I believe I was trying to convince myself of the worthlessness of life and of life's unfairness. I told myself that my survival and that of my family was the most important thing. So the rest of this fucking letter is literally just a bunch of nonsense and they do read some of it in the documentary and I feel like I don't want to read this guy's state of mind anymore because it's, you get the gist of it. It's heinous. So even though Mark cannot and has not forged anything in decades, his impact is still to this day in 2021 felt at auction houses, libraries, museums, and private collections around the world. His work lives yeah, he's on, cast basically. a shadow of a doubt well, on everything. Not only that, but his his work was, like, his mix of research and technique was so skillful that about a decade after his capture, so, like, 10 years after he was caught, an Emily Dickinson forgery of his was authenticated by R.W. Franklin, the director of Yale University's Binecki Rare Book and Manuscript Library. I bet I butchered the shit out of that. Probably. It was sold for (laughs) $24,150 through through Sotheby's. Ten years later, to this day, like, his work is still considered to be, like, in museums and stuff. Oh, yeah. They've said that they'll never be, like, a thousand percent sure that they've gotten them all because he didn't just do... LDS. God, we are just winning tonight with these headphone issues. As soon as you fixed yours, mine went out. We're back, bitches. I was just saying, because he didn't just do LDS church-specific documents, and he did so many different varieties that, yeah, they said they'll never really be confident that they've gotten them all because they don't know where he ends and the authentics begin because, A, they're so close. There's no specific industry. Total, the LDS Church recognized 446 items in its archives as uh, archives as fraudulent purchases from Mark, and they have been removed. Jesus. All, I know, 446. <laughs> I know. They've since been removed along with any other positive mention of his name or achievements. So we got a little bit left, but we're almost done. Hopefully everybody is still awake. Our headphones have both been betraying us, so we're almost not awake, but that's fine. There's just two kind of, like, interesting stories, I guess, that are outside of the documentary at this point. So if there's anything else that you, like, want to say, I think we've kind of said enough. No, because, again, to be honest, I thought, like, this had a really bomb.com last 45 minutes to it but otherwise to me this wasn't necessarily my style of documentary although i did i learned so much and i still found it really interesting it just wasn't my style 
I'm actually really excited for you to listen or watch like how to get away with a drug scandal now at some point. So now it's we can do a trade off in a way because it'll be interesting. That will be really interesting. Yeah. So Dory, who was Mark's ex-wife at this point, changed her name obviously back to Olds and she didn't have a college degree or a means of supporting herself or their they had four kids he was the main breadwinner and so when mark went to jail she had to give up the house that they lived in she kind of like just farmed out her youngest kids to relatives when like she felt the kids no longer listened to her respected her like she had a really 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 hard time she grew her own food for a while and tried her hand at selling magnetic beds which like i don't know what that is but you know she felt really alone though rejected by a lot of people including her in-laws, some of her own family members. She did eventually, though, develop some close relationships and a knack for analysis and therapy. So now, 30 years later, Dory Olds is at peace with herself and everything that happened, she says. She's 62 years old. She works as a consciousness coach, and she says that she helps people with stress relief and personal development, and that her career grew out of mainly like what she experienced being the wife of a mass murderous bomber yeah yeah didn't she want to support other like spouses or people who were unknowingly victims as well by this she did and i mean again i think this all kind of lends back to like why she turned a blind eye to it she knew without him that she has four children to feed and they have this lifestyle and I think it's easier to turn a blind eye when you know that your whole family lays in the balance of it. Well, and again, he's not murdering people. It's not like these wives, and again, I'm not blaming them either, but that you hear of and you're like, how the fuck did you know that your husband was like not, how did you not know that he was like hiding bodies in your basement? It's not even that severe. He's not killing people. And so, yeah, I mean, she, he put. These are like tax evasion cases where they're like, how didn't you know? And you're like, I don't look at my husband's business books. Yeah, if he says everything's good, I trust him. He's my spouse. And he's putting food <laughs> on the table and everything else about, yeah, exactly, I trust him. I don't just assume that, yeah. yeah. So she actually said she liked the documentary and that, like I said, her portion of the interviews were done at the Masonic Temple in downtown Salt Lake City in a period of one day, a morning and an afternoon session and it, like many, many hours. Jeez. Yeah. So one of the last thing, I'm just going to end this off on a positive note. I feel like we always try to end with a positive story or talking about the victims or just like something that isn't the silver lining, something that isn't the main asshole because, you know, we don't, I don't, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to end off with you. You suck. We're done with you. So see ya. This story is actually really, really beautiful. That's why this story was one of the reasons that made me want to kind of look and see what else I could find that was left out of the documentary because Netflix did know about this story but it just didn't make the final cut I'm sure lots of shit didn't make the final cut too positive maybe yeah maybe I don't know or just like they wanted <laughs> okay. they wanted it in four and this would have you know been kind of like an end I, I, I really don't know but I'm gonna tell you so who the hell needs Netflix because you have podcast by proxy true yeah I don't, I don't give a shit what Netflix says I care what you, you say don't need Netflix I want your opinion. None of y'all. Your stories. None of y'all need Netflix. So the forgiveness story. 15 years after the bombing killed Steve Christensen and Kathy Sheets, Mark and Dory's oldest son turned 19. And he, they're still involved in the church. And he decided that he wanted to serve a two-year mission for the LDS church. So like his out-of-country missionary that we said they all do. 
And at this time, Dory Olds, who we're going to refer to as her, like, her name now, had actually, she struck up a friendship, this is kind of weird, with Judge Kenneth Rigtrep, who was the sentencing judge who sentenced her then ex-husband Mark to prison. So she was friends with the judge who sentenced her husband to prison at this point, 15 years later. And so when she found out that her son got this mission call to Germany in 2000, she really wanted to share the news with Judge Rigtrup, like for no reason other than she was just like really excited and wanted to share the news with him. So fair. He was there for a big part of her life that was really monumental and probably knew the kids through it. So that's fair. So she's explaining to him that while she knew that the rest of the family, like grandparents, aunts and uncles, and like everyone else would more than likely be able to like, because I guess it's expensive to, you know, go to Germany and you have to pay for the missionary, I believe, like every month. And then also apparently there's all these super fancy, like particular missionary clothes you have to get. And she said that she knew that the family would be able to pitch in and get all pitch in every month to support the missionary while he was actually there. But she just wasn't sure yet how she was going to come up with the money to get all the supplies he needed to like actually go. And so the judge goes, well, let's call Matt Christensen. So Matt Christensen, who was known as Mr. Mac, was the father of Mark Hoffman's first victim, Steve. But he was also the owner of a chain of clothing stores that specialized in shirts and suits. Shirts, suits, and pants for LDS missionaries. So she's like, what? Judge Rickdup's like, yeah, we might as well. So he calls Matt Christensen and basically, yeah, he's like, look, there's no harm, no foul. Let's try. Yeah. So he tells him that there's an anonymous missionary with a struggling single mom who needed assistance being outfitted for a mission. And he said that immediately Mac was, like, super easy to help out. But at the end of the call, Ken told him, he said, I want you to know the person that you're agreeing to help is Dory Old's oldest son. And, I mean, that guy's, that son's father killed one of his sons. So Matt Christensen pauses for a really long while. And then he tells Ken that he's going to have to speak to his family first, basically. He's like, you know what? Just let me take this away. And uh, That's out of respect. Back. Yeah. yeah. And fair. I totally agree with that decision. I think, again, like you said, it's out of respect for the rest of the that's family. That's big of him that he didn't just say no. Yeah. Like, that's huge. Yeah. So this guy who sentenced a man for murder is now asking the father of one of his victims to help the dude's son serve a mission, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so... I think a lot of us would have been like, go fuck yourself. But Matt. But if you're really a person of the church. Yeah. And he was. You gotta forgive. And so Mac calls Ken and says they're ha- that their family would be happy to help them out. And that arrangements have already been made for the family to go to the store and pick out the clothes. Aww. Isn't that so nice? And so Dory said they were very kind. And she said they were very polite and professional i wasn't really sure how to be i mean how are you supposed to act around someone when your ex-husband killed their brother i mean that's really kind of interesting i was just polite and i was very grateful i had a very grateful heart there wasn't any awkwardness they were just so very kind to me so nice and at the end of the day if she really didn't know anything and her whole world was flipped upside down she really is a struggling single mom of what were four kids that she has now had to essentially provide a better living situation for two of them already. And she's just trying to help the two she has yeah. be successful. Yeah. They didn't, so they didn't charge her a cent, but they did ask that she didn't tell anybody the story. And she didn't talk about it for years and years and years. But 
She was at a symposium on her ex-husband's crimes hosted by bookseller Ken Sanders. I just put that in there. I don't even know who that is. She (laughs) trying to... You know, someone out there is like, what? You don't know who Ken Sanders is? Bookseller Ken Sanders. Like, I know what I'm talking about. Lord. But she said she brought it up because the topic of forgiveness was coming up. And you remember the guy Al Rust from the documentary? It's like the older guy. Yes. Like he, to yes. me, he looked like he was extremely tall. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And he was like talking about how he like. Wasn't he wearing a light colored suit? Yes. And he was like kept talking about he had yeah. to forgive him and let it go and keep enjoying his life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Dory said she felt like obligated basically to bring it up so that everyone could hear the incredible story of how one of Mark's own victim's families looked past his crimes to help her son. Matt Christensen and Judge Ken Rigtrup both died in 2019, but in 2011, Matt Christensen, aka Mr. Mac, spoke out publicly and said, I've forgiven him. I wouldn't ask them to let him out, but I've forgiven him. That's what you have to do. You have to forgive and just help people. And that's it all i got we made it and i really wanted to finish off with that story though because netflix left it out and i honestly thought that it was like really incredible and kind of deserved to be left in but i'm not a documentary editor so it is and you know what there it's uh, there's one of those moments i think it's on like court tv or something to be honest and it's exactly one of those where like the victim's brother is like can i just hug you And the lady's, like, bawling on the stand because she accidentally killed this guy's brother. And so it's, but then he's like, I forgive you. I don't wish any harm to you. Can I hug you? And the judge actually lets them hug. There are these moments of compassion and, like, beautiful things in these crimes. You just got to find them. Well, and it, I think it lends a lot of humanity to these stories where they're so lacking. These Mm -hmm. stories that we talk about every single week, they lack like basic humanity and like caring about one human another decency. and human decency yeah. and all of that every single one of them does and so to be able to have a nice story like that just to kind of end it off and show that top it off lots of us are really really good people who do just want to help other people and so we have to like keep that in mind when we're like fuck everybody I'm guilty of it. I really yeah, it's am. A lot, it's a lot harder to be kind than it is to be an asshole. Yes. So just try, people. Yeah, I'm really trying. Put in the work. I'm trying so hard. Me too. To be like Me the too. kindest version uh, of myself that I can be. And I have always tried to... Anyways. I want to be as kind as I can without being a doormat. Yes. And but like just ha- maintain you know, myself. Not being judgy is cool. Totes. And that's all. Um, so I'm signing off today. Follow us on Instagram at Podcast by Proxy. We have our case submission, our link tree. There's still a change.org petition up for the case that Olivia covered to make sure that piece of turd stays in prison. That's it. And uh, I think that's about it. Yeah. And again, if you have any feedback on the episode that we did together, if you like that style more, if you'd prefer us to do more episodes like that, because we had a lot of fun doing it as well, we're open to it. So we're waiting for your guys' feedback. Cool. All right. We out? Loggity log off. I'll call you soon. Okay. <gasps> okay. Bye. Bye. How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. Fuck <laughs> me.